This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the nation station. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. This is Episode 8. I'm P.F. Wilson, the content director for Cincy Shirts and our sibling site, OldSchoolShirts.com. Today on our show, WWE wrestling legend Rob the Bomb Williams. The only thing, uh, when I was starting, what I was known for uh, was what's called taters, when you tater somebody, and that's when you go to punch somebody and you don't pull back enough, and they take the full brunt of, of a punch. That was kind of the one thing that I struggled with. Darren has known Rob for years, and he knew that he had wrestled professionally, but really didn't have any idea that he was a proper WWE performer until we were looking at his stuff on YouTube in the studio right before Rob came in. And uh, Rob wrestled for the WWE, I think the WCW, for several years, working his way up through the ranks, you know, from the regional level all the way up to the pros. And uh, really interesting stuff about how the world of wrestling works. And then Rob also tells us what he's been up to since leaving the ring. So listen for the promo code at the end of the episodes. You can save 20% on your next visit to our website or store. And if you're listening to us via iTunes, please leave us a review. It really helps us out. And also, uh, toward that end, uh, Rob walks us through a match that he was in at First Star Center back in 2001. That's now U.S. Bank Arena in Cincinnati. And there will be a link to that video on our blog at CincyShirts.com. Just go to the blog and look for the uh, post for this episode. It's episode number 8. And I'll have a link there for the YouTube video, and you can kind of follow along if you like, because he kind of narrates what's happening in that video. It's pretty cool stuff. So with that, let's talk about wrestling with Rob the Bomb Williams. Cincy Shirts.com in Cincinnati. I'm not on Snapchat, so. Uh. I don't understand the Snapchat. I'm old. <clears throat> you know, I tried it. I just I, did, I couldn't yeah. I couldn't get into it, man. Yeah. I hated it. Yeah, I didn't understand yeah. it. I loved it until they just updated it. Uh, they ran an update and it's like, ah I don't know. I think it's for the young people. It totally is. <laughs> it's uh what's the new thing? Um Velo or Vero or something? Uh, That's a new know. platform that I see people posting Hello? follow me. Mm, no, I think it begins with a V. v? Yeah. Vito. But I see people posting, like, follow me over here, and I'm like, I can't handle another platform. Yeah, it's tough to it's tough to do, that's for sure. Yeah, I like Facebook, and uh, Instagram is my favorite. Well, my wife tagged me in a post from Mashable this morning and said to erase Facebook from your phone. You make your life better. Oh, is that right? I know a guy that did that. Jimmy Pardo's producer did that. He goes, it was great, but then he got obsessed with Twitter instead, mm. so that took oh. him. But yeah, I could, I could see that, because you're not mindlessly scrolling. Yeah, but I've got to leave Facebook up on my computer because that's how I get my trivia gigs. Since I don't have a permanent one yet, so ah, so as soon as one pop up, soon like, as one pop someone up posts up. in our group and says, "Hey, I need a sub tonight for so and so," you have to grab it because it's someone nice. else will get it. Yeah, so what's a trivia gig? What, what are you doing there? I, like I do trivia for Last Call Productions. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So is that held in bars and yeah. events and things yeah, like have, that? Okay. I have a permanent one starting March 27th, just down the street from the new store. That's why I took it. Nice. I figure I'll work in the stores. I'll work there on Tuesdays. What place is that? Uh, uh, Casual Pint. 
Okay. Nice. Yes, yeah, down the cool. Christmas. He's on the circuit. Yep. On the trivia circuit. Yep. Take that stuff national. Since the cameras aren't rolling, I'm just going to go on, on record yeah. to say I can't imagine how productive the girls would be if they get rid of Facebook. Huh. <laughs> like, know. literally, like, I will watch her spend two to three hours a weekend on that thing, and then, like, God, I just don't have any time to do anything around here. I'm yeah. Like, or if you can't sleep at night and you roll over no, and my, your I, wife's on her phone. You two know, nights like, ago. She's like, oh, yeah, I've been on for two hours. Yeah. Like, and then the morning, God, I'm so tired. I can't do my anything wife, today. She can't sleep. Up, up, up cons the, uh, the iPod, and she looks down like, you have to stop. That's so bad for you. Yeah. You will not be able to sleep doing it. Oh, just don't fall back to sleep. No. Yeah. Just That's preventing it from exactly. falling back to yeah. sleep. Yeah. You're not listening to me. And then she wakes up, I could I slept terrible last night. Well, quit turning on your damn iPad. <laughs> I'm just like, you've got to have read everything on the internet. Like, there can't be anything <laughs> yeah. left on the internet as much time as you spend. So, uh, yeah, that's just... The whole thing, uh, deleting Facebook from your phone, I think, could be very... And it takes up so much room, too. I'd rather yeah, have other stuff on it. I've got all my sports apps on there, man. I got any room for that. There you my go. radio apps. Awesome. So here we are today. We're getting ready for WrestleMania, so we thought it would be a good idea to bring in an old school local wrestler. He's more than that, folks. He's got a couple stories. For, I'm sure he'll be able to tell us. But um, yeah, so we're here with Rob Gent, aka Rob the Bomb Williams. So yeah, welcome to the Cincy Shirts podcast. It's uh, we're in the stock room of our Hyde Park store, as always. I know you got some stories, man. Man, this is a nice place. You guys have really, uh, really upgraded over the last couple of years. Yeah, heck yeah, this man. Is pretty luxurious. We got foam in here, so there's not too much uh, noise going around. We got a TV with their name on it. Dig it. I like it, man. Luxury. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I'll post a picture in, in the uh, blog page. Podbean, unfortunately, doesn't support photos very well, but if you go to the Cincy Shirts blog when this goes up, yeah, uh, I'll show you all a picture of the studio. So. Yep. We'll get some uh, some pick of, pics and videos of uh, Rob doing his thing from back in the day. But So anyway, so where should we start? So you... Uh, did you always have an a interest, interest in, in wrestling, or how, how, how did you get to... Uh, to the level uh, that you got to, or let's just yeah, just tell me a little bit about your story. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so dating back to little flashes of memory that I have, I remember going to the gardens as a kid, and uh, my mom was a huge wrestling fan, and uh, I, I have little flashes going to the Cincinnati Gardens and watching some of the old timers there. And so that's like some of my earliest memories. And then I just kind of grew up. She would watch it on Saturday mornings, and then I became glued to it on the TV as well. And uh, just drawn in. And right from the get-go, it's something I always wanted to do, um, just to know the path on how to get there, you know. Um, were you an aggressive kid? Were you always beating up your brothers and sisters or whatever? I was oh yeah, my little brother, um, I feel bad for him because I was always putting the moves on that I would, I would watch on TV and practice yeah. all the time. I mean, I, we would just beat the hell out of each other and I would always end up with some sort of finishing move or something like that on him or having him tap out to the figure four, you know, that sort of thing. So it was pretty cool. So what era, who were your guys that you're watching? So back in those days, we're talking about, you know, Ric Flair was kind of in his heyday. Very early Roddy Piper, not the WWE version, but the very early Roddy Piper, Wahoo McDaniels, uh, Manny Fernandez, the Raging Bull, Rock and Roll Express, those guys, uh, the Road Warriors, like old Georgia style was what I really liked. Uh, Jimmy Valiant was uh, my mom's favorite wrestler, the Boogie Woogie Man, uh, Jimmy Valiant. So he was my mom's favorite. So... 
Um, it was pretty cool if you fast forward many years and I actually had a chance to wrestle him. That was that was really cool. Nice. Yeah. So you're what are you, late seventies or in early eighties? We're after Dick the Bruiser. Yeah, it's kind of that era. So I think the flashes of memory were like Dick the Bruiser, the Sheik. Um, the Sheik ran the territory out of uh, Detroit. It was okay. Cincinnati was kind of his territory. The Iron Sheik? No, this was the original Sheik. Um, okay. The Iron Sheik came came along years later, but this was um, Ed Farhat was his name, and uh, he would he would clear the arenas. Like he would he was one of the early bleeders that would just bleed all over and he would pull something out of his tights and jab it in people's eye and cause them to bleed. And he wasn't a big man by stature, but he would freak people the hell out. And uh, he ran the Cincinnati territory. He was based out of Detroit. And back in those days, um, everybody had a territory, certain towns that they would go to. So like Detroit, um, Canton, Cincinnati, I think Cleveland was part of that territory. And and that was his. And then you had like Georgia, um, the Georgia, the Carolinas was another territory. You had uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Canada. That was the AWA. Uh, WWWF was like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. Those It was all regional back in those days before huh. cable TV. And um, so he was the one coming. His promotion was the one coming to Cincinnati. And I was told many years later that my favorite at that time was a guy named Pompey. Pompano Furpo and um, oh, the mighty Igor. And uh, they were just big, scary, hairy guys that uh, just kind of the power. And they were brawlers back then. And so I was told that those are the guys that I really liked as a very young kid. Nice. So did you, in high school, did you wrestle? Did you do other sports? Um, I wrestled. Wrestled for a couple years. Um, and it was totally different. I was going to say, yeah. Uh, but I thought, man, that, that was going to be a segue into me doing yeah, yeah. it in the big time. So I wrestled my first couple years and I was really pretty good at it. But then I got into kind of the party scene and realized that um, I liked to party and I had to support my my beer habit and, and partying habits. So I gave up sports so I could work and kind of went down that path, which wasn't the most positive. But that was the road that I chose at that time. Then how did you get into wrestling, like the wrestling you do now? Yeah, so many years later, well, I always continued to be a fan. I always continued to watch it. So if you fast forward a few years, like late high school, um, right outside of high school, I would find some small promotions and uh, I would go and I would attend those promotions. Um, and they would have like guys that were, or one time they were big names and now they're on their way down. Um, so, you know, like Greg the Hammer Valentine and some of those guys that were, were past their prime, Junkyard Dog, those kind of guys. And they would be on these shows, but they were more kind of traveling shows. And then one day I was looking in the local newspaper and uh, seeing that there was a show that was happening in Price Hill that wasn't too far from, from my home. I grew up in Western Hills. So I attended and uh, seen some of the guys like, man, if some of these guys can do it. I can do it. And uh, heard that there was actually a school there in Price Hill right next to the building they, that they were running. Um, so I kind of mentally took a note note of that. And uh, one day I, I uh, said, you know what, I'm just going to go check it out. And uh, I showed up and said I was interested at that time. There was a, a gentleman named Roger Ruffin who didn't own that promotion, but he was the head trainer. They uh, they taught me how to bump, and, and that's a fall you do, like a flat back type of fall. That was kind of the very first um, introduction I had to it, and did it on a crash mat. And then when they took me in the ring to do it, and I hit the ground, I felt like I was going to shatter like a piece of glass. I mean, it was painful. And um, 
it just kind of evolved from there. And I didn't tell hardly anybody that I was doing it because I wasn't so sure that I could make it through the training. So just a couple people that I was friends with knew I was actually doing it. And my goal was just to do one show a month. This is kind of what I wanted to get to because I was already working a full-time job. And I did training for about six months. And then after that, I was doing shows. I was doing two to three shows, usually a week at that point. Wow. How long was the training? How long before you were ready to go into the ring properly in front of an audience, in front of a crowd? Really, it's all based on you and and how quick you pick it up and your athleticism and how quick you evolve. And I think because of of watching it early on as a kid, I kind of understood how the flow went, but... Still, it's it's a totally different game. Your timing, uh, your footwork, and things like that, and how you handle yourself in the ring. So after about six months or so, I was I went to another show that some of the advanced guys were wrestling in um, in kind of mid Indiana, and I went to watch. And a friend of mine and I, another trainee, we went to uh, the bar inside the building, and um, one of the more advanced guys came back and said, "Hey, uh, they need you in the back, and uh, they I think they want you to work." And at that time, we were just doing security around the ring. That's how you kind of pay your dues first. You oh, do security around like the, the ring. the door guy at the comedy club. Yeah, it's exactly. <laughs> you're, you're just putting in your time. Except you might get hit and fall flat on your back. <laughs> you might do that. And uh, I thought, oh, man, I don't, I don't want to do security tonight. I just want to watch the show. So I went back to the back and I said, yeah, what's going on? They said, uh, you're on first. You're going to wear our gear. And we piece, piecemealed uh, tights and boots and a whole outfit. And uh, somebody didn't show up and they needed a fill-in. So I was wow. on first and uh, was kind of thrown into it. That was my very first match. And uh, at that time, I was nowhere near ready at all. Probably the entire first year, I probably wasn't ready to actually be there. But um, So you're all personality and all... I mean, you didn't have a character or anything. Would no, they, I, I didn't. I mean, would they just, here, put these pants on and yeah, roll with it? You wear his his pants, you wear his boots, here's a, here's a jacket, and you just go out there and, and do what you learned in school. You learned some of the moves. So that's kind of how it worked. It, it, it was just kind of being thrown into it. But after my match, we got through it. Everything went fine. And then I snuck around like to a back door to watch the rest of the matches. And next thing I know, I had a line of kids coming up to get my autograph. And I thought, man, this is really cool. Wow, first night? And uh, first night. And that was – I was hooked. I I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. That's awesome. So, I mean, I bet you're stumbling around. And I'm guessing that, you know, the less uh, experience you have, the more uh, apt you are to hurt somebody. Did you you experience any – I don't know, either injuries because you weren't doing the moves right to yourself or I mean, did you hurt anybody in those earlier days or people are like, man, watch out for this Rob guy. He's, <laughs> he's a little rough. Um, no, not really. The only thing uh, when I was starting what I was known for uh, was what's called taters when you tater somebody. And that's when you when you go to punch somebody and you don't pull back enough and they take the full brunt of, of a punch. That was kind of the one thing that, that I struggled with. And I remember a couple of the, the older guys – like uh, saying, hey, ease up. And then when that happens. Easy on the taters. Yeah. And when that happens, there's a thing called receipt. So when, when you tater somebody or stiff somebody, if you will, um, a little bit harder than what it should happen, you get a receipt at some point of the match or they pay you back. And uh, so you always knew if that happened, you were going to get a stiff shot at uh, some point. So how many, uh, how many times did that receipt require another receipt from you? And then pretty soon it's just like an outright brawl. Does that ever happen? Not so much. It, it, everything was, was still pretty professional. There were a few times things got a little stiff. Um, but when you're a young guy, you're in there and you're just 
you're going with the flow. You don't know really what to expect. But as I matured and, and became a veteran, um, and I would be in there, in there with younger guys. I was put in there with sometimes guys who shouldn't have been in there and didn't know what they were doing. So you kind of take control, and then when they stiff you, then you start you start stiffing them back, and you kind of take control of the mat and go on with it. So how long was it before you felt comfortable? You said it was about a year, but when did you start to realize that, you know, that, okay, now I know what I feel really comfortable. I feel confident up here. Probably about three years into it. It oh, took wow. about three years um, of traveling, um, learning other styles, because when you, when you wrestle, like here in Cincinnati, you wrestle with guys that were trained by the same person. Everybody kind of runs that same style. So you, you adapt very quickly, but then once you start traveling, going to other areas, you, you learn those other styles and, and moves and, and that sort of thing, and you learn how to be more reactionary. And after about three years, I, I felt that I, I could really take this somewhere and do something with it. Um, so about that time. And then after five years, I was, was totally confident in my ability, and um, well, I felt that I was very good in the ring at that point. Yeah. And anything unexpected happen in the ring? Like, you know, Darren was saying, uh, you guys, you have to, you know, to, hurting yourself or someone by accident. But mm-hmm. any unexpected things happen in that regard where, like, something didn't go as planned or someone surprised you with a move that you weren't <laughs> expecting? It, it happens a lot. It, it really does. Um, you know, the outcome is predetermined, but things going on in, in the ring is, is real. You're taking those bumps. Um, the chairs are very real chairs. The tables are real. They're not pre-rigged or pre-sawed or okay. because in, in that case, it, it wouldn't necessarily break your fall. So those things are, are very real and, and anything can happen at that point. So I've had more stitches than I can count. Um, there was one time in, uh, in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, we were wrestling a show and I went to climb up to the top rope to dive on a guy on the outside. And uh, this guy and I had wrestled many, many times. So we knew each other's styles pretty well and we were, we were actually great friends. And when I climbed up on the rope, the top rope was very loose. So it, it took me a second to get my footing. During that time, the guy seen that the ropes were loose. And he and so he tries to improvise and he takes a step in. As he takes a step in, I get my footing and I just dive outside. And when I dove, I end up diving over him because of his step in. So he reached up. He grabbed my feet and grabbed my legs. And when he did, it caused me to come down head first like a lawn Ooh. dart. I, it felt like I'd been headbutted. I, I pushed up off the concrete. There's a pool of blood oh. under me. Oh. I miss lawn darts. <laughs> <laughs> Those are great Man. games. And um, so from that point, we roll in, and I knew I was bleeding, and um, we yeah. we finished the match. And because I I wasn't out of it, I, I felt I still felt okay. I just knew I was bleeding pretty bad. And uh, roll back in the ring. We finished the match. Finally, got the blood to stop flowing in the back. Um, the back of the building got the blood to stop flowing. My hand was hurt. I thought that I may have sprained my wrist, so I kept my tape on uh, my wrist. And then uh, from that point, we'd always go out to the bars afterwards and hang out. And uh, I went to the bar and hung out. And then once the bar closed with, with uh, my buddies, I ended up going to the hospital and told them that I tripped on tripped down some steps at home. Yeah. And um, like, oh, I saw his girlfriend beat him up. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things because you can't, you, you couldn't necessarily tell them that you happened, it happened wrestling because then that would cause your insurance premiums to go, oh. go berserk. So you wow. always had to kind of make something up a good story. <laughs> so I, I, right before I walked in the hospital, I took the tape off my wrist cause I kept it on my wrist until then my hand was hurt. So I said, Hey, I, I need stitches and I think I may have sprained my wrist. Um, so then they looked at me, I had three breaks in, in my wrist and I had like, I don't know, 12 stitches in my head. And, uh, 
went on with it. And that was another day at the office. So after that point, I wore a cast and I continued to wrestle with a cast on until it healed. So you see, the outcome is predetermined. How much of it is predetermined, or is it just this is what's going to this is how it's going to end? You fill in the middle, or do you got is it any discussion between you and your opponent beforehand, or any any signals like oh he's going to do this, so I'm going to do this? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot of everything what you just said. Okay. Um, so wrestling first and foremost is, is entertainment. It's all about a storyline. It's all about you know good versus evil, and and maybe now we're the good guy is going to get a, a big push. We want to make him a big star, or maybe the the bad guy or, or wrestling uh, terminology. It's called a heel. Um, or, you know, we're going to really push this heel and make him, you know, a, a top star. So it, it's all the whole storyline is getting that person to kind of that top level or wherever your your, your position is in the card, and then doing storylines with wins losses to get that person there. So everybody has a role that they play. Um, so in order to to get those storylines over, the outcome of the match is predetermined. So typically, when you're when we were doing the shows, the promoter. Um, or the booker in wrestling terminology would come up and say, okay, this is what I want tonight. I want Rob to go over or win the match with his finish, and I want you guys to do X, Y, Z to get there. So you know what the finish is, and you would just reverse engineer the match to get to that point, basically. You would have an opening spot. most cases, it's to put the good guy or the baby face over, gets the crowd to pop and then the heel takes over the bad guy takes over and then there's usually a couple other spots in the match to get the crowd back into it and then you go into what's called the finish so that's predetermined but the rest of the match and and how you you got there is was typically between the two guys in the ring we would talk about it um oftentimes and then uh, we'd go out there and work it most of the time you didn't walk through anything you just said Okay, what what would you like to do? If I didn't know the guy, what do you like to do? What are your moves? Okay, this is what I'd like to do. And then you would you would piece it together. A lot of the guys, like here in Cincinnati, or once I wrestled in a promotion for a while, um, you would get to know kind of what their move set was, and you would just blend it together. So you kind of have a, an idea of how the match is going, but a, a really good wrestler, somebody that can improvise on the fly. So if the crowd's not responding to what you guys may have talked about in the back, you got to call the audible and maybe do something a little different in the ring uh the old days the guys wouldn't talk at all and i i was fortunate enough to to wrestle in some of those areas um and kind of get schooled on that point of it where there were good guys the baby faces in one room and the heels are in the other the bad guys and you didn't talk then the referee would come and say hey you're going to win tonight or you're going to lose tonight and this is how they want to do it and then they would go and they would tell the other guy, hey, this is this is the finish. This is what you're going to do. You didn't have any communication at all. You got in the ring and uh, you just – you kind of uh, talked a little bit. Um, you would do holds and you would call the next next spot. And you'd go in there and you would just dance. And um, if you were in there with a guy that wasn't very good, the match could be horrible. But back in the old days, that's how they did it. There was no talk um, of the match and what you're going to do. You knew what the outcome was. Other than that, you called it all in the ring. Wow. Could you make suggestions to the storyline? Could you say, you know, because if you'd been in a storyline for so long, because I know actors do this sometimes, they'll say, hey, mm-hmm. you know, I think we should do this. Were you, did you have that kind of uh, kind of pull that you could do that? Or was it just, no, we're doing it this way and the promoter, what the promoter says goes? Um, very early on, I just did as I was told. That's how I was taught. You just do what you're told. But then after a few years and, and you, you get very confident in what you do and you learn the psychology and, and what it takes to get there. Um, and then also there was a little bit of protecting your your persona, your character. You knew what you had to do. I was one that I would 
make suggestions or, or challenge the outcome. I, I, I was always really good at looking at the bigger picture and knowing how to get there and, and knowing how to tell that story. And, and it wasn't always, it wasn't to put me over or, or so I would win because there were times that I, maybe the promoter said, Hey, you're going to win tonight because this is the long term. No, it's actually better if I lose tonight because it makes more sense. So there, it wasn't yeah. always that. I was always contributing for, for the good of the storyline or the better the promotion. Um, yeah, the fans' perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I just knew what was good long term. That's awesome. Have yeah. you ever bombed? Like you're up there just doing your thing and you're just like, man, this, the crowd is just not digging this? Oh, there, there were totally times that that, that happened. Um or you're never the guy, as we mentioned before, that just doesn't have any talent and or just doesn't have any charisma and the fans just don't care. And then maybe you just take over and you, you call it a, an early match and you end it quicker, you know. So there was times like that. Um, there was one time that I, I was wrestling and I, I separated my shoulder. I, I knew that I was hurt. I couldn't lift my arm at that point. I was wrestling uh, a new kid at that time. His name was, was Chad Allegra. And um, he wanted to do a tilt-to-whirl head scissors where he does this flip and you spin him and he flips his body and then you take a, a somersault in the air. Something that you need two arms for. You okay. definitely need two arms. But he, <laughs> that's what he called. And, and when he, he came up and I grabbed him, we weren't in the right position. So it, I was worried about hurting him. So I had to make an adjustment as I'm lifting him. And then when I did the flip, I didn't get all the way over and I came down on his shoulder. And we were going to have a, a longer match that night. And uh, once I hit, I knew I was hurt. I rolled out, tried to regain my composure. I went to take a step in. Um, so he knew something was wrong at that point. And he's he's mouthing to me what the next move is he wanted to do. I got in the ring. I just kicked him and, and hit him with a finisher and covered him. And I got out. Um, <laughs> and the crowd's like, wow. Yeah, they're like, oh, that was short. It was kind of out, out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah so business. That does happen. There's just there's unexpected things that happen in, in matches. And uh, like I said, you got to be able to call the audible. So the finish is predetermined. So like mm -hmm. you guys both, okay. And you're saying with the audible, because I'm curious when, you know, you have the crowd going, how do you know that the crowd isn't buying it uh, and they're just booing and getting into the action? I mean, mm -hmm. how do you determine that it's not going well? You listen. That's the key. You just listen. And that's where, you know, calling the audible where some people and, and, and even a, a lot of the kids today, They've got to get all of their moves in. They've got 20 different high-flying moves that they want to do, and they've got to get all their all their stuff in. But I think a really good wrestler um, listens to the crowd, and it, it's the crowd psychology. And when you hear them start to get quiet, you know you've got to do something to get them back up. There's often times where you know the guy maybe want, wants to do this move, and you hear the crowd's dying, so you've got to call something else to that person to get them up. If they're booing... That's probably a good thing because they're they're booing the bad guy. If they're cheering, that's awesome. But there there's psychology that goes into it. Like typically, you start the match and they're hot. The good guy's getting over, and then all of a sudden the bad guy cuts them off. And then it's you know ooh, and then the bad guy does a couple you know big moves that the crowd's like oh man, and, and they've got to feel sorry for the good guy. They've got to have that sympathy and empathy for that guy, and they've got to put themselves in that good guy's shoes that he's getting beat up. And then all of a sudden there's false hopes where the good guy starts getting up and starts punching back. And the fans like, all right, here we go. He's going to make a comeback. And then the, the heel, the bad guy cuts him off. And it's like, ooh. So you're basically the, the real art to wrestling is taking the crowd through a roller coaster of emotions throughout. 
So you've got to be able to listen to those, um, the crowd and their reactions and be able to time things accordingly. Yeah. So when someone yells, you suck, you know, you're like, hey, do I really suck? Or is this guy just really loving it? <laughs> right. That's, that's exactly guy. it. So as a good guy, the last thing you want to hear is that you suck. Um, as a bad guy, you relish that. And that's what you feed off of. And yeah. the more people that you can get to say that, the better. Like through my career, I played both sides. Um, but I think I had the, the most success as, as the bad guy. And my goal was to get people so mad at me that they literally wanted to jump the guardrail and beat me up or they wanted to wait for me after the show to to beat me up. And if I, if I had – there were times they waited for us, yeah, after the show. Really? Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was, me. <laughs> and, and, you know, there were times that fans accused me of hitting them, that the police were called after the show. But I would I would get right in their faces and I would I would say some, some pretty mean stuff to get them riled up. And um, the matter they got – the more they would like the guy that I wrestled, the more they would cheer for them. The more they hated me, the more money they would pay to come next week to see me get beat up. And that's what I wanted. And that's when you know you got them. As I say, they sit these same people waiting for you after every match, like trying to. Yeah, they, <laughs> I was here last week and I couldn't get to you. Right, <laughs> and um, you know, there in yeah. certain towns that we would go to, there would be regular sitting in the same seats every week or every two weeks, depending on when we went to that town. And you knew where they were sitting. So when you came out to the ring, I would go right to those guys and I would get them riled up. And then that would kind of be contagious with the rest of the crowd. They would get behind that. And uh, and during the match, when you start beating the, the good guy down, you go right to those guys and you say something again to them. They get some riled up. And then the crowd gets behind that and, and they get fired up. Oh. So it's uh, it, it's really cool. And, and I say psychology often, but that's what it is. It's it's to get somebody, if you're a bad guy, so fired up that they, they want to they wanna wait for you and beat you up afterwards or they'll pay money next week to see you see you uh get your butt kicked or if you're a good guy you got to make them love you you gotta you got to make them feel bad for you when you're getting beat up you you got to make them pay money next week so you they can see you get your revenge on the guy you know it, it, it's amazing some of the towns like they knew my birthday they would bring if i was a good guy they would bring me birthday cakes they would bring me gifts um it, 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 it's pretty crazy but then when you're a bad guy your whole thing was to to make them hate you and sometimes you would do that turn and you would do something to disappoint everybody. If it was your turn to turn to a bad guy, you do something so despicable and low down that they, that flip the switch. Now they hit your guts. And so uh, how long do the storylines play out? Because you said you were, you were a good guy. Sometimes you were a mm-hmm. bad guy. So one storyline plays out and then the promoter decides, okay, now you're going to be the good guy. Here's the new storyline. And it's all changed around. Or how does that work? Or once, cause you're established as the bomb. I mean, weren't you just set into that for, for the rest of your career or no? um no not necessarily usually okay. a a really good good guy can be a really good bad guy because the, the fans love you so much that when you turn now they despise oh, you okay. you betrayed them <laughs> if you're kind of a, an, an opening card guy and, and one week you're a good guy and then you do something they really don't care um they don't have any anything invested in you. So the more you can get them invested in you to be a good guy, and then when you make that turn, the more they despise you. And sometimes it's the other way around. When you're a bad guy and, and they've, they've hated you and all of a sudden something happens, you, you, your partner turns on you or something happens, and now all of a sudden they like you and now you make a better good guy because they want to see you finally get revenge on it. 
so it, it, even as the bomb, most of, of my career at that point, I was a bad guy, but there were times where I would turn and be a good guy and I would have the adoration of the fans and that sort of thing. So yeah, and it changes. Storylines, it's different. Back in the older days, storylines may go for months because maybe you're only at, a, at that town one time a month. So it may be six months, nine months for one storyline. Um, other areas, you may go every week. They had shows every week. So your storyline is sped up a little bit. Now, today, like if you watch the, the, the main products, WWE and New Japan and those uh, products, storylines come and go just in a couple months because the all the saturation from TV – also, fans' attention spans. Um, you know, now with with Twitter and Facebook and always going to your phone, if you're not doing something fast paced on TV, fans lose interest. So, it, it's kind of kind of unique to see that transition. How it's gone now, storylines are, are pretty quick. And things like UFC change people's perception of it, or people understand wrestling is still wrestling, and like you know, it's because it's affected football a little bit. I yeah. think probably because people just want more action and more. Yeah, things like that. But that affected the wrestling world at all? It did. When UFC really kind of hit it big, it really affected wrestling. The the uh, attendance was way down. Um, even viewership was way down. Because it, it, it really, wrestling peaked, you know, kind of during the Attitude Era and that sort of thing. It was, it was as big as it ever was. And it's very cyclical. There's always, you know, very popular times. And then there's always those, those peaks and valleys. So when UFC hit, a lot of people turned the channel and started watching that and then they started having shows in different cities so you may have a wrestling show in one city and then there's a ufc show not a ufc but a, a local promotion across town and, and the attendance will it's definitely died down now it's it, it's totally different people i think really differentiate the two products but when i got into it like that was still the time that people believed it was real and um you know everybody's kind of educated to it now but back in those days people thought it was real when they bought into it hook, line, and sinker, and then the UFC kind of changed that perspective of things, uh, for sure. But even when it was revealed that it wasn't because, you know, they, it started in New Jersey because the state of New Jersey said, we have to decide, is it or is it not, because that's how it's going to be regulated. Yeah, I, I remember it being thing. like mm-hmm. a real yeah. debate. Like, yeah, and, uh, then, like, and then Like, like in the 80s, like, yeah, my buddy on the bus would be like, do you know wrestling's fake? And I'd be like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, yeah. Yeah, what are you going to tell me next? New kids on the block? Not right. Cool <laughs> but ultimately, people didn't care. They yeah. they still wanted to follow the storylines. It was like, you know, a soap opera. And they'd like, that. that's fine. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. When you're going from town to town, is it like a Broadway show where it, the same thing happens in each town over the storyline? Or do people say, oh, this happened up in Lima, and now they're coming down here? They, were they able to follow the storyline in that way? Or did you have to play out the storyline each time in each town so everyone was caught up? Usually it was uh, in each town because... There were different promotions um, in each town. So one night you may be working with, you know, Dr. X in this town. And then if I go to um, Evansville, Indiana, then oh, I'm working okay. with Jim Shue and nobody knows Dr. X. It's totally oh, different. Okay, so okay. it's um, so you're always switching leagues and yeah, flipping just wherever you book. Different storylines. On the, on the independent circuit, you're switching leagues or, or promotions, if okay. you would. Um, but as you mentioned, as far as the Athletic Commission, that's why it came out. Because even for years, the Athletic Commission, they would always sanction the show and, and you had to get um, a license in each state. Some states required you to get physicals and, and even you know, at certain ages you get physicals. So you had to do that. And then the, the Athletic Commission would take a percentage of the gate. Whatever you brought in, they were taking some off the top. So, But that was for years and years. And then um, in the late I guess late 80s, early 90s, maybe it's mid-90s, um, that's when Vince McMahon 
said, you know, enough's enough. And he came out and said, no, it's, it's entertainment. Prior to that, you it was like mafia style. You didn't tell anybody that it was <laughs> fake. It was very hard to get in the business at that point. Um, if you were lucky enough to find a school, because keep in mind, the internet wasn't around. You couldn't Google wrestling school in your area. Um, you would go in and, and they would basically beat the hell out of you to see if you were tough enough to continue doing it. And that was the weeding out process. But then once it, it became entertainment, <laughs> then these schools popped up and, and you know, there's a lot of guys out there that were happy to take your money and, and teach you a little bit. And, and maybe they didn't have any success themselves, but they, they did a couple opening matches somewhere and they were teaching you and, and taking your money. So they're happy to take your money. And, and so that's how I think I say the product has been wandered down over the years because of that. Hmm. So tell us about the schools. One of the biggest wrestling schools in the country is here, right? Or was here? Or There were two, actually, that were here. Um, originally, it was one, and then it split. Okay. So there was a, a, a school here. Les Thatcher was the trainer, and there was a gentleman named Johnny Diamond who was the owner. Um, they had a split. Les Thatcher started another school that was called the HWA Heartland Wrestling Federation. And then uh, the other guy, Johnny, took his promotion and uh, brought in another trainer named Roger Ruff, and that became the Northern Wrestling Federation. So we actually had two schools here. Uh, when I started, I started with the Northern Wrestling Federation. Uh, Les Thatcher at HWA had connections with the WWE or WWF at that time. Roger, the, the instructor over at the Northern Wrestling Federation, he also had connections, and he would ref when they would come into the areas and, and that sort of thing. He, um, if you know, Columbus, Cleveland, Lexington, Louisville, they would they would just have him drive in, and he would be a ref at that point. Um, so both had connections. Les's connections probably were a little bit better. Um, he was able to get his guys on some uh, what's called dark matches where you kind of try out matches. He was able to get more of his guys to do that. But people were coming and moving here to go to one of those two schools. Uh, the young kid that I mentioned earlier with the Tilt War Hudson's, the, the Chad Allegra, he came from um, Asheville, North Carolina. He started at HWA. Then he came to the Northern Wrestling Federation because he felt they kind of plateaued. And he ended up going on. He's just a WWE tag team champion now. Um, but he moved here. He's a, a great example of somebody moving here to do it. Um, one of my best friends, um, Chris Park, who um, he moved from Cleveland. Um, then he was working with a minor league hockey team in Atlanta, moved to Cincinnati so he could come to train here, wrestle at the Northern Wrestling Federation School. Wow. Um, and he was working for the Cincinnati Cyclones. That was his day job, and he was training here, and he finished. And now he's on. He's the monster bis in TNA, like a, a big name. And now he's kind of – older and he's working um doing some producing and some writing for the shows and that sort of thing but yeah there were two big schools here less hwa school actually became kind of a place that wbf would would send people when they were rehabbing injuries to kind of get back in ring shape when they were trying to test out some new talent um they, they would go there they also had a developmental this is wbf which is now wb also had a developmental in Louisville. So same scenario, and they would train guys there and uh, get them ready for TV or rehab them as well. So this was this was a hotbed back in the day for, for wrestling. That's awesome. Yeah. So what kind of venues? I mean, I'm I, obviously you're not doing Riverfront Stadium. Yeah. Or you guys weren't even at the gardens. I mean, you're talking high school auditoriums. 
I mean, like Bogarts, uh, yep. Armories, like, place like all of those, and uh, Peel's Palace. Yep, <laughs> Peel's Palace was the Northern Wrestling Federation's big show every month. That was a entertainment venue that was in Erlinger, Kentucky. They held boxing matches and some entertainment. I, I think uh, some we need a Peel's Palace shirt, by the way. If anyone has oh, yeah. a logo, send it to us. I'll be uh, first in line to buy it. <laughs> anyway. um, but that was kind of their their. Their big promotion. We also would would wrestle. We did some shows in the gardens. They for bigger shows, we kind of rented out like the annex side of the gardens and did some shows there. We did some outside shows at the gardens. We would do armories. We would do some high schools would would bring us in and they would get a cut of the gate and, and it would be a fundraiser for those. Um, there were convention centers in, in other cities, so it, it really it, it was. You never knew kind of what kind of venue from week to week that you were going to be in. People's Palace was was very special. That was kind of our, our big show here because there was a kind of the last of the territory uh, promotions that Jim Cornette, who's a famous name in the wrestling business, he managed the Midnight Express, who fought against the Rock and Roll Express, and then he was in uh, WWE for some time. But he started a promotion out of Knoxville, Tennessee, and it was called Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And Cincinnati or Northern Kentucky became one of their stops in their territory. That was a, a, like a monthly or, or semi-month or um, every two two months that he would come here and he would wrestle at Peel's Palace. The his promotion would, and that's where like Mick Foley. He didn't get a start, but he was there. You know, the Rock and Roll Express were in there. Gangsters. There was um, Chris Candido who became a big name. Uh, Kane um, was was a wrestler there before he was Kane. Uh, Al Snow was was one of the stars there who was originally from Lima, Ohio. And they would come to Peel's Palace. And I actually attended some shows there and, and you know, was just blown away by the athleticism and, and, and how those guys would, would handle their business. And what happened during the time that um, that company started going bankrupt and they had already sold tickets to Peel's Palace. And the day of the show, they decided that they weren't going to put a show on there. And there were a couple of the, the talents that had already drove there and they decided they weren't going to do it. So um, Les Thatcher and, and Johnny Diamond, the, the guys that had the, the school here in Cincinnati, scrambled to find some guys put on a show and that's where it, it really started the Northern Wrestling Federation's long-term relationship with Peel's Palace. And that was that was a hotbed and we would we would sell it out. It was awesome. we would pack in over, you know, a thousand people there sometimes to to watch and it was a big deal. So is that equivalent to like your open mic? You know, like your weekly show that you you look forward to this. You're going to prepare some new material for. That was our monthly show, right. and we looked at it that as like that was kind of our pay per view. We yeah, would do okay. other smaller shows, and uh, even when I went on and, and I kind of left the NWF to to do other bigger shows in other cities, myself and, and a couple of my buddies um, that came from Cincinnati, we would always come back and do those Peel's Palace shows. Those are very special. Yeah, so we always made a point to make sure we were available for Peel's Palace. That's awesome. Yeah. So the uh, so how does it work? Uh, you, you know, you mentioned you 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 got some uh, some traction in your career. Mm-hmm. You're doing you know the, the the regular circuit you normally do, and then you mm-hmm. also got some. Uh, so so how did you get to the WWF? Because uh, I know I don't know if you had a, a contract or whatnot, but you did do some shows or exhibitions or mm-hmm. or whatever. If people want to look up on YouTube, there's some videos of. Uh, Rob the bomb doing his thing, but yeah, go ahead and tell me that here. Before, let's talk about that before we bring up. Uh, yeah, so yeah, this is uh, WB here. This is actually in Cincinnati at uh, River or, uh, oh. First Star Center at that point. So as we continue to wrestle, 
uh, the the Indies, if you will. We were going to Georgetown and Lexington, Kentucky. That was a weekly show. Another guy from Cincy, uh, Chris Harris, uh, him and I um, became a tag team, and we were wrestling these guys in, in the Lexington area, and we you know we got to have some really good matches. So we continued on. Those guys were, were from Nashville, and uh, I got a call from one of them one time and said, "Hey, we're looking for some kind of like a, a younger." Baby face, good guy team that we can face in, in Nashville, and Nashville was a major hotbed. It was, it's it's always through through history. It's always been a, a big hub for wrestling, and at that time they were also the WCW um, developmental area in Nashville. So uh, we went down there and and we had some great matches, and we, we became regulars in Nashville. So every weekend we would drive to Nashville and that was kind of where we would start our weekend and uh, we would do shows um, in, in a place now that's, that they still hold wrestling at the Nashville fairgrounds. And at that point, uh, we were starting to get in with some of the developmental WCW guys and working with them and having some great matches. In that process, Nashville lost its developmental deal and that moved to um, a, a little town outside of Atlanta called Cornelia, Georgia. And that was a promotion called Wildside. So that became the WCW Developmental. So we started traveling down there. They welcomed us to come down and, and wrestle. And we that's where we started getting what was called like enhancement matches. And they would just send us uh, to WCW. And at that time, WCW was running every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday like big shows. Monday would be Nitro, which was the huge popular show. Tuesday would be a show called Thunder, which was which aired um, it was taped and aired on Thursday, and then they would do their Saturday night show, um, and that would they would film that on Wednesday. So they started sending us to these shows, and whether they used us or not, we were getting great paydays to be there. So it was like myself, Chris Harris, Chris Park, who became Abyss, David Young, who was a buddy of mine from Atlanta, uh, AJ Styles, who now is the WWE champion. We were being sent to these shows, and when they needed somebody to plug somebody in, they would use us to try to get the other guys over or try to make them look good. But in turn, it gave them an opportunity to see what we had and hopefully eventually get signed to a contract. So we started doing shows. Um, and at that point, I made it a full-time career because we were doing WCW three days a week, and then we would finish doing the circuits the rest of the week. Uh, so typically Thursday was an off day and then Friday would start back up again and we would do the circuits and, you know, we would end up doing wherever WCW was on Monday and kind of follow them around for three days. And uh, so it, it really, it was, it was pretty cool that it ended up being a, a five to six day a week uh, work week for us and our bodies are taking a beat. And that's not an easy gig. Not I mean, an easy I was gig. I going to say, how does your body put up with it? Man, that's that's just... Uh... It, it, there's often many times that they didn't even use us, or they would use us as like security to do um, two guys, two main guys would be into a, a fight, and we would go out there in security shirts and pull them apart. So th- during those times, we weren't necessarily you know hurting ourselves you know, other than travel. It was, it was a pretty easy schedule. And then at that point, WCW started to fall apart. It closed. And the promoter from Atlanta that we were going down and wrestling in Atlanta, he had a relationship with WWE or WWF at that point. And there was a show in Cincinnati. And he goes, hey, I'd like to send you guys to, to the show. And if they need anybody, you guys fill in. And that's that's how it works. So you show up, you let them know you're there, and then they plug you into matches. And uh, so the very first time that I wrestled for WWE, WWF, was here in Cincinnati at the First Star Center. 
you know, for me not having a contract, but to come down, it was the match before Raw came on live, and it was a tape show called Metal at that point. And to walk down the aisle at First Star Center, now U.S. Bank Arena, in front of a sold-out crowd in my hometown, to me, that was... I had made something. I, yeah. I achieved my dreams because growing up, I always heard, oh, you'll never make it. You can't do it. You're too small. It'll never happen. Give it up. And uh, so even though I'd done other arenas throughout the country, walking down the aisle in Cincinnati in front of a sold out crowd was uh, was when I, I felt that I had finally kind of finally achieved my, my, my dream and my goal. That's awesome. Yeah. So when uh – so if you were Rob the Bomb Williams, first of all, where'd you come up with that name? What what's what where'd that persona come from? Mm-hmm. So when I started here in Cincinnati, um, they they had me be what's called a plant. So you're sitting in the audience, and a a wrestler starts harassing you or calling you out. Uh, so it was a, a guy wrestler by the name of the Spoiler. He was from parts unknown. Uh, he was a mask guy, and he started calling me out um, at People's Palace. And then eventually um, I got in the ring and announced that I had been training and announced that I just got a wrestling license and that we were going to to start fighting and we had a match. Um, so He's it became messing with the wrong guy. That's exactly <laughs> right. So um, so I was Rob the fan and uh, I, I wrestled under that name for a while. I, I that didn't have any longevity to it. That's um, a cool concept, that though. Is. Yeah, yeah. that could fan. be me. I could do that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, so the fans yeah. really got behind it. Um, I lost a, a loser leave town match very early on. I came back wearing a, a hood, and it was RTF, you know, for Rob the fan. And we we continued to feud for a while, <laughs> and then so I just wanted to to ditch that name. And I was always a fan of uh, the Dynamite Kid or the British Bulldogs and his style. So I took on the name Dynamite. And then uh, when I did a turn, I wanted something a little bit more. I wanted something a little bit more kind of overstated. And I thought, you know, the bomb is a cool name. If you're the bomb, you're, you're, you know, you're it. So it was kind of an arrogant, super arrogant name. And I thought it just fit. And so I, I took on that name and that's what kind of stuck for the rest of the years. So you're the the bomb no matter what promotion you're wrestling in. That, that's you. You own that. Yeah, that persona. was me. Um, except there were, there were some – like the developmental where they wanted me to be a good guy. So I would just use my name. Um, I wouldn't use the bomb persona, but most of the other established areas that I was in, I was the bomb and I was the bad guy. And um, that's how I wrestled. And at one time I held like the heavyweight championship in Cincinnati, Lexington and Indianapolis. It, I was one of the top bad guys that people would pay to, to watch get beat up. <laughs> that's awesome. And you're, you're in the uh, Kentucky wrestling Hall of Fame? Yeah, I'm in the, the Kentucky Wrestling Hall of Fame. I'm also in uh, the Northern Wrestling Hall of Fame. I went in there, too. So two different hall of, Halls of Fame. Um, nice. It's It's been really cool. It's it given me an opportunity to see the country that I wouldn't have, have seen on my own if I just would have uh, adopted the 40-hour work week uh, mentality and, and have done that. Um, I had an opportunity to uh, be one of the main eventers in 2002 at the Sturgis Bike Rally um, in what was the um, – Oh, the TV show that they did, the one that like Jackal was producing. I can't remember the name, but it was uh, at that venue. Um, was it a wrestling show? We did a wrestling show yeah. uh, right there. So uh, we did that. I've, I've been to, you know, all over the country with an opportunity to wrestle. And uh, so it's it's really, it's it's parlayed to the rest of my life. And, and it kind of helped me become who I am. It helped build my confidence and my people skills, if you will, yeah. to kind of parlay that into a career um, outside of the wrestling business. That's awesome. We'll talk uh, life after wrestling here in a second. But <laughs> I, I kind of want to get your play by play of this. Uh, 
If you guys want to follow along on YouTube, you can go to our blog. This will be... Uh, yeah, I'll put a link in there. Uh, go to our Podbean page. Uh, I'll put the link there. and also, Or you can go to the Cincy Shirts blog and look up the blog post for this episode. And I'll have the link there, too. Yeah, so this is uh, 2001. So this is, this is in Cincinnati, right? That's in Cincinnati. U.S. Bank Arena. Let's see here. Uh-oh, so we got X-Pac... Just Incredible and Prince Albert. All right. So at, at this X-Factor. match, um, this was the week before they were going to put the tag team belts on X Factor. They went against the Hardys and won the tag team belts the following week. Okay. So they're coming, coming down. They were they were a heel tag team, but they were still over with the fans. So that's me right here in the yeah. front. Wait, so what was your name there? I didn't see... They put Joe Williams, because it's just irrelevant. They didn't care who you were. Ah, you were just there to, to make those guys look They didn't care if you're Rob. Up. Right. So what's the premise? Man. You're local guys that these guys are coming to... Yeah, they announced us from Cincinnati, so that oh, okay. kind of gets a crowd behind it. And then these guys come in and, and start beating us up. So that's just incredible, <laughs> throwing a haymaker. There, he gets me in a headlock. Yeah, nice. All right, I'm trying nice to figure tight out how, shorts. Yeah, I'm gonna try to figure out how I'm gonna work this, and then and I'm gonna in, I'm gonna throw him into the ropes. Okay, Rob's in the red shorts here. Yeah, red trunks. Okay, so then I do a hip toss. There he feeds go. back up, and I'm gonna do, I'm gonna ring his arm a couple times. Try to try to weaken the arm. You're crushing it. Now I'm gonna <laughs> tag in. So this is another local guy, no uh, way Chris you're Harris. Lose. So then oh, okay, Chris so Harris comes in, and then the matches. He takes the brunt of the the beating here coming up. So oh. he, yeah, so uh, X Pac pulled the rope down. Chris tumbled to the floor. There's some double team effort there. Yeah, and that's gonna leave a mark in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably why Chris doesn't have any children at least that he knows about. <laughs> Our partner is also Doug Basham, um, who end up uh, becoming kind of a, a big tag team name in uh, the SmackDown show. Man. Whoa, threw him into yeah, the so ring. Prince Albert is a massive guy. The the big bald guy right here that you see, he is the head trainer now in the WWE developmental system at, at NXD. Oh, okay. So he trains all the talent when they first come in. So X-Pac, DX, NWO, all, all that, and he was kind of the leader of this uh this faction here, super nice guy. He he really was a, a great guy to doesn't look to like work it. with. <laughs> in the ring, he wasn't such a nice guy. So then he goes for a cover. Chris kicks out. So you're just hanging out on the sidelines, waiting. Just to get hanging tagged. on the side. Yeah, I need to be tagged like, in. Come on, buddy, I need some airtime. Exactly. Here. <laughs> yeah, he's letting me down. So this is what's known as heat. They're getting the heat on on uh, Chris, the, the baby face. So this is uh, this is the Bronco Buster that he's so well known for. Uh, now, yeah. So you got another guy's crotch in your face. I know, that, <laughs> I know that's not you, but I mean, yeah. Not so, not so enjoyable, like, right, buddy. That's, that's <laughs> not it. so Let's enjoyable. Calm it down on that. <laughs> Take it down a notch. Right. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah. So a modified power bomb. Uh, then he kicked out. Yeah. Now he's laying the boots to him. So now the big guy Prince Albert comes in. And he is a massive guy. Uh, after he left WB, he went on to make a name for himself in Japan. And uh, the guy that I mentioned before, Chad Allegra, became Carl Anderson, became his tag. He was from Cincinnati. The guy moved from, from Asheville, went on to be his tag team partner in Japan. Huh. So there he just. Uh, his big bucks in Japan? 
Yes. Yeah, very much so. All right, so he uh, laid a shot on us, so Chris couldn't tag us in. Chris starts firing back uh, in a boot to the midsection. Uh-oh, this is not going to be good. No, chicken wing into a, into a slam. I mean, they practiced that move beforehand, or no, is that just no something practice. everybody knows? Just you, you, he knows he can do it. He probably maybe had done it in training. Um, but you know it's coming, on. right? Um, sort of. No, I mean, real, uh, no. We know how to react to it. You know how to react Once to it. Once it starts, you're like, okay, this is going to happen. So yes. Need to, okay. Or sometimes they will will, will kind of mouth what's going to happen. You kind of know, uh, so you know what to to expect. All right. Yeah, I mean, I so look at this the, double clothesline. Oh, now they're down. Man, he took out X Pac in there. Yeah, dude. absolutely. So now the crowd starts to react. They think that the local Cincinnati guy is going to make a go. comeback. Are you guys going to bash him in? A couple clotheslines, a couple drop kicks. Is this going to be as upsetting as you see Xavier in the uh, <laughs> tournament yeah, this year? Yeah, very, very similar to that. So at this point, I decide I'm going to take out the big guy and, and try to. Try to help our team win. That's not a good idea. No, so he's back on the outside, you. and then he just oh, catches me. Right there. <laughs> oh, no. And then he rams me in, oh. and I'm done for the rest of the evening. So Doug Basham. Never recover. He goes in, and then he gets a big splash. Double Man. super kick. One, two, three. Ah, and it's over. That's awesome. So is that is that your most memorable match? Is that uh... the fact that it was from here in Cincinnati? It, it is. Um, like I said, walking out to a sold out crowd. That's something that that I will always treasure. That's, oh uh, yeah, because you, you probably walked out to fifteen people before. Absolutely, and uh, so you see a sold out crowd of sixteen thousand people, and you know, a handful or a, a good bit know who you are from the local circuit. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. Did you face injuries, or what point did you say, "Okay, it's time to grow up"? I gotta. There's other things in in my life I want to do. What? Yeah, it's what was um, that moment like. So it was in Nashville. Um, at the it was at their big arena down in Nashville before the before the where the Predators played out was built. We were in their arena, and I took a suplex on the concrete. And uh, when I did, I came down the wrong way. I came down on one side of my back, and uh, I, I felt it felt different. It wasn't a regular wasn't a regular fall. And I had taken those many times and I would I would take a lot of flips on concrete. But this one the guy kinda hoisted me over, you know, a little faster than what I was ready to set for. And when I came down I knew something wasn't right, but I continued to wrestle for, for several months after that. And then it got to the point that during the match my back would just be on fire. It would, it would be burning and I would, would come in and I would sometimes just fall on the floor in pain. And uh eventually it just got to be so bad that I'm like, something's gotta give. At that time, uh, was also kind of a, a tough time in the business because WCW had sold um, ECW, which was another big event or big uh, promotion. They had folded. So the only big promotion was the WWF at that time. And then we started working for a promotion out of – it was based out of Evansville called MECW, who had a lot of big stars, and we were wrestling for them. So that was an opportunity I worked with with Mr. Perfect, Barry Windham, um, uh, Public Enemy. A lot of big names were coming there because outside the WWE, that was the only promotion around. And then all of a sudden, our checks started bouncing. So I, I've got bills to pay, I've got you know things I've got to take care of. Our checks were bouncing, and then my back continued to get to get worse and worse. So I said, you know, it's uh, it's time for me to to hang it up. I just felt that was the very end. And at that time, I was also still going to Atlanta, and I told the promoter, I said, hey, I think this is going to be my last time down here. 
And he said, hey, don't, you know, don't give it up. Hang in there because there's another promotion that is kind of on the horizon that we see, see forming. And I said, I just, I can't, I can't take it anymore. So I decided to kind of hang it up, uh, stop traveling. I came back and, and started working in uh, gyms here in Cincinnati, which that's what I had done before um, wrestling full time. I started working in gyms. I decided I was doing a couple local shows here and there, but at that time my back just started bothering me too bad and decided to hang it up. So when was the last time uh, you wrestled? Well, I came back a couple times for some certain um, shows, and I think it's been three years ago that I I had one last run, uh, very limited dates. I didn't do a whole lot of extra dates, and I came back and I ended up beating my best friend, Angel, um, who looks more like the Jack Link Sasquatch. I beat him for the title. I uh, came back, and, and I always said when I retired, I wanted him to be my last match because he was my very first match. And we trained together. So I always wanted to to wrestle him. always wanted to wrestle him as the last match. And that never happened. So I came back, and I came back as his friend. I turned on him, and then I, I, I beat him for the belt. And then we wrestled about three years ago at Bogarts. Um, I was at that show. Yeah, you were at that show. You guys were... were Selling shirts. Yeah, I I don't think I've ever seen, you know, like a a live uh, wrestling event like that. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what to expect. And, you know, and there was, what, 150 people there, max? Yeah, it was actually more than that. Was it? Yeah. I was super impressed as as to what everybody was doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, from from everybody, I don't know. I guess I I didn't know what to expect. Uh, I thought it would probably be more storyline than it would be athletics at that level. Yeah. you know, the, stuff, the moves I was seeing there was uh, just like the stuff you'd see on TV. Right. I mean, I remember that, that match you were in. What was it, like a ladder match or something? It was a cage match, like cage. an eight-man cage match. There yeah. was a ladder there. So they brought a ladder had, in. Everybody yeah. had to get out. Yeah. At one point, there were like eight guys. Like, you guys had this tower. Yes. It was like <laughs> it was like a dang cheerleader tower, like you'd see, <laughs> except it was just mangled wrestler bodies all on top of each other. And yes. then you guys all like... We all crashed. Probably, yeah, three or four people high, it seemed. And yes. then it just like went down like a uh, wrecking ball onto the it – was, it was nuts. But anyway, yeah, you're talking three years ago. And yeah. you're in there getting smacked around and uh, you went to the hospital after that match. I went to the hospital after that match. So I I started having another feud with a guy by the name of Nasty Ross. And him and I were, were kind of intertwined, and I was still wrestling this other guy named Angel, my, my best friend. And we were going to culminate to uh, a retirement match, but um, the idea was to to put the belt on Nasty Russ. So him and I kind of had this little feud that was going, and the last two participants in this match, this cage match, came down to be me and Russ. The idea was that he was going to hit me with, with a chair a couple times in the back before we got to, to the finish. I, I remember my daughter, who had only seen me wrestle a couple matches. She was you know pretty young, and uh, she just was freaked out about seeing me wrestle in this cage match. And I told her, I said, hey, it's going to be fine. I promise I'm not going to get hurt. And, and then so it comes down to just Russ and I in the match, and then he goes to hit me with a chair. And when he does, I, I feel a crack against the back of my head. And I've taken – hundreds and hundreds of chair shots and typically it goes across the, your back and I used to get them flat in the head but I felt the, the frame of the chair hit me in the back of the head mm. I went down and when I, I pushed up there was a pool of blood under under my face oh. so I knew oh. and the first thing I thought of was oh no I promised promised my daughter I wouldn't get hurt um, but anyway we got up I took a couple more chair shots he hit me with his finish and pinned me and he won the NWF heavyweight title that night um, and then I, I end up getting about 16 staples on the back of the head. 
that night. And um, after those heels, I, w- I went back and I think I had two last matches to get me to my last match with Angel, which was our retirement match. And that's when I, I said, that's the last time I'll ever wrestle. That was it. That was it. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a good uh, good way to wrap up the career. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, go out on your, your terms. Uh, you know, you got you got other stuff brewing. So, so the gym... Working, bouncing around from gym to gym that finally allowed you to, to get the, the business chops and the connections to uh, own your own Anytime Fitness franchise? Yeah, that's correct. Um, so I, I've spent about 20 years in gyms as you know, membership sales, trainer, manager, director of operations. I've kind of run the whole gamut of as far as positions in the gym. Um, that I actually got into the gym business to get a flexible schedule so I could wrestle. That's how, that's what brought me into the gym business. I'd always been a gym rat. And ever since I was 14, I was, I, I loved, you know, the working out process. And I think it all came from wrestling actually, uh, from watching that, but I, I just had a passion for it. And then uh, when my flexible schedule became a little bit more certain, I needed more flexibility. I ended up leaving the gym business to pursue wrestling for a few years. And then once I decided to hang it up, I went back to what I knew, which was the gym business. So started working for a couple other gyms. I think, as a matter of fact, I even signed you up at one gym yeah. one time many years ago, <laughs> that right? Was a, that was that was a crazy story. Yeah, I was at, at Fitworks in Newport. Yeah, I was probably ninety eight or nine, somewhere around there. I just got Cincinnati as at art school. Yeah, you had long hair yep. about down to your ass. Yeah, <laughs> hey, oh, you know, want gym membership? Sure. <laughs> and then, like, it was like probably three or four years later that I met you again through my wife, my or my future wife right. and your future wife for friends. Yes. I was like, wait a second, that's the dude that, that signed up <laughs> with the. Got the got the Fitworks membership through. I came to see you at an open mic night at, at uh, Go Bananas Comedy Club. Oh, yeah. I think that was the first time I yeah, met you. Those are the days, and that's what's funny is like you know you think comedy and uh, you wrestling are so different, but it, there's a lot of similar paths. Totally, as far man. As, uh, yeah, just the, the the crappy shows from here to there, yep. just working your way up, and then once you get there, you're kind of like, man, this maybe isn't what I thought, or I need to do something else, or. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it is interesting. But. Yeah, it's it's wrestling, comedy, and music are, are very parallel. Like you start out, like you don't know what you're doing. You're you're very nervous. You're scared. You're playing really crappy venues, small venues to to hardly anybody. Um, you continue to to progress, and then you end up getting better venues, better paydays, better gigs. Um, and then it all it, it culminates, and then all of a sudden you're on the downhill slide. You know, very similar in all three arenas. Yeah, um, they're, they're very parallel. It's nuts. Let me uh, – so back back to the business side of things uh, as far as running the gym goes. Mm-hmm. Like what what kind of uh, struggles are you finding as a business owner, you know, might not even be related to anything inside the gym at all? Or, you know, what's that difference? Because you said you're always – you're always the guy working there, and you had a fine job. I'm here to, I'm here to sign up people on their memberships. I'm here mm-hmm. to, you know, give a training session, whatever. Now you're overseeing it all. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. How's that different from just, obviously, 
So I'm, besides being 10 times harder. Yeah, <laughs> it's really the school hard knocks. I wasn't a very good student in school. I didn't go to college. So when I realized that wrestling wasn't going to wasn't going to be long term any longer for me and I was working in the gyms, instead of just kind of going through the motions, I, I leaned towards mentors, guys who were in, in kind of ownership roles or manage, management roles, and then I asked to learn. So I was just soaking it in. So it was kind of on-the-job training for me. And, and learning not just how to count reps or, or sets, but okay, what's what's the margins to this PT session, or or what's the marketing uh, plan for the over the next year? And I started to learn that. Then I started to learn how to read P and Ls and and um, uh, financial statements, and, and it all just continued to evolve. And in every gym I went to, I would learn a little bit more, and it just kind of culminated. Then I took a position as a franchise consultant for Anytime Fitness headquarters, based out of Minnesota. And uh, at that point, I, I met uh, a gentleman who had a, an anytime franchise here in Cincinnati, and he had bought the rights to a territory, but wasn't sure if he wanted to pursue it. Um, so we decided, you know, he would pass it to to me, um, and we would open up the gym gym together and, and be partners. So now um, I, I manage and run the Anytime Fitness in Independence, Kentucky, which um, I'm there on a regular basis. And now being an owner, you're always dealing with. Um, there's always going to be employee turnover. There's going to be your marketing. For me, owning it now, my wheels never stop turning. I'm always thinking, what can I do to market the gym, or what what kind of new piece of equipment can we bring? in? What can we do to increase member retention? What can I get? What can I do to make members use the gym more? Because if they use the gym more, they stick with you. So now it's it's an ongoing thing. It's my passion. It's really what what I love to do. And I've never been a nine to fiver. Um, that's just not my mindset. So it's like whatever it takes. All the information I've that I've learned through the years, it, it all kind of comes to a head and I'm able to apply it and use it. And now I'm a motivator and, and you the hundreds of people that we've impacted their lives has been incredible. You know, many people have lost 50 pounds, 75 pounds. We have a client, a personal training client at my gym now. She just hit 118 pounds a loss, and she's doing things in her wildest dreams she never thought she could I mean, do. That's a human. She it's a, said, she yeah. Had, she had a human on her back. She really did. And, um, you know, the idea of getting on the floor and, and trying to pick herself up was was unthinkable and last week she got down on the floor and she did she did a push-up for the first time so we're impacting lives and, and we're, we're changing things and uh, I love it it's it's been something for me to channel my passion into and, and the idea is just to continue growing that and uh, to open another gym within the next couple of years so how how do you compete with uh, the other gyms like I mean if I was a gym owner and, you know, my, my rates are 30 bucks a month and then I see these yahoos selling memberships, you know, for $10 a month mm-hmm. and uh, it seems like there's all these different approaches. There's, you know, there's a $200 a month clubs and you get yes. the classes and the training and the pool and all that. Mm-hmm. If, I don't know, like, like where, how, how do you find your, your niche as far as where, I mean, I'm sure Anytime Fitness already has figured that out, you know, by right. the time you have the the franchise but but how do you how do you make it work and it's got to be frustrating at times to see some you know crazy crazy promotions out there yeah it's exactly right we're, we're not the cheapest in town we're not the most expensive but we're not the cheapest other gyms have uh you know with a ten dollar rate and they've got a huge marketing budget and they just they're always pumping ten dollars a month ten dollars a month and they're big massive clubs but what people don't realize it takes them ten thousand members to break even just to, to cover the expenses and that so where we separate ourselves we need a few hundred where you know where that that thirty dollar you know plus range and what the approach that we've taken is 
we we value each person. It's not quantity, it's quality. So if somebody comes in, myself and my staff, we know that person's name. We greet them by name. It's that customer service that's such a lost art now, and that's what we pride ourselves in. Everybody's got a story when they come in, so we do our best to find out what that story is. We find out kind of their family situation, and, and we genuinely care about everybody. So we don't have the marketing budget, but when somebody comes into our club, it's much smaller. It's more intimate. They get that personal care. They get, they, we know their name. We say goodbye when they leave. We've taken that lost art of customer service and exemplified it. And the people that are there, they can see the true value and, and why they would pay more to come to us as opposed to a $10 a month gym where it's, I'm going to sign you up and there's the equipment. Good luck. Have fun. Yeah. And for some people that works, right? If you know your way around the gym and, and you just want kind of a cheap version, that's cool. Then you pay $10 and that's where you go. Um, but if you need some help, if, if you care about customer service, if um if you want somebody to, to show you how to use the equipment and use it safely and correctly, that's where we differentiate ourselves. We do a lot of things in the community as well. Uh, one time a month, I send a trainer over to our local fire department. We train the fire department uh, for free. It doesn't cost them anything. Um, we do, you know, food drives for, for hungry people at Christmas time. We collect toys for a, um, a organization called the Stein for Toy Foundation. They've been around for a hundred years and they're all based out of Northern Kentucky. We collect, um, toys. We collected six huge boxes of toys this year. And then we, we take it down to Steinfurter. They come and pick it up. And we also volunteer our time and we take it out and deliver the toys to less fortunate homes. So we've got that going on that we, we give back to our community. And I really like that foundation because it is based in Northern Kentucky where our location is. Yeah. Is that something that you guys just, uh, as far as like your own personal, Karma marketing is kind of what we call it. You know, mm-hmm. you always, yeah. it feels good to give. Absolutely. Uh, or is that is that something with like the anytime franchise? That's what a lot of the people do because you don't you don't hear about many gyms doing food drives or any charity stuff at all. Like I don't. Yeah. Or, I guess you really don't know the face of many gyms out there. You right. Know? Um, you know, that's kind of the culture with anytime fitness as a whole. We're all about being involved in the community and doing things. And that comes from our corporate office. They do recommendations of what you can do to help th- help people in the community or get your name out there, grassroots or good karma marketing, as you say. But to me, it's important that we just give back. I believe charity starts at home, and that's where we get involved doing that. Um, last year, the month of June, we did free workouts in a park. Didn't have to be a member. Anybody could come to it. Uh, we'll do it again this year. I don't, I don't have the date yet, but we'll do it again this year that we just do free workouts. Anybody in the community can come, but it's really, that's the culture of anytime fitness um, as a whole. It's not just our location, but it's, it's gyms that really care about people because once again, it's, it's, it's quality, not quantity. And um, we, we value every member that comes in the door and we want to maintain them. It's easier to maintain somebody than it is to, to get a new one in. And we don't have the huge marketing budgets. We would rather put money back into referral promotions or new equipment and things like that in the club. So that's where it's a little different. Um, I'm also the president of the Independence Business Association as well. So who'd have thought, right? It's somebody struggled in high school, didn't go to college, yeah. pro wrestler that's getting suplex and, well, and slamming know. people. <laughs> and uh, now I'm a business owner and, and president of the business association and, and working with other business owners to move our community forward. And and we do a lot of things in that nature, which kind of parlayed our, our toy drive to now the, IB, the Independence Business Association, the IBA, that other businesses were involved in. In it, we 
help uh, support the local Christmas parade. Um, we do a lot of events in the community, a spring cleanup coming up in a couple of weeks that we, you know, pick an area of independence and we clean that area up and we get volunteers to do that. So now working with that and, and it, it, it all started, I think with me wrestling and, and, and dealing with those learning relationships and, and those skills then into business skills. And, and now it gives me a louder voice in my community to help, help the community. Awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So you went from the bad guy, the heel wrestler, to the baby face gym owner. <laughs> That's a good perspective of it. And there's some times that I'm sitting in a, a board meeting at our city building, um, and I've got the mayor on one side of me and the city administrator on the other, and I kind of pinch myself and wonder how I got there. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Rob, you got a good story, buddy. Glad you could come in. Hey, and, thanks uh, for having share me. It. Uh, also, every episode, I don't know if you've been listening to our previous podcast but you have the honor of picking the promo code for this week awesome so just i was prepared one oh, word good. one phrase uh and people can use this code and save 20 percent off at cincyshirts.com until our next episode is released next wednesday so rob what is that promo code promo code is going to be anytime anytime all one word all one word, anytime. Make sure you use it. Take advantage of uh, some of the great shirts. I've got to pick up that Cincinnati Garden shirt before I head out. Can I use that yeah. code myself? Uh, sure. I've got to get some more than uh, 20% on yeah. that one. But, uh, and uh, also, we'll, we'll make this good on old school shirts, our sibling site, because we have wrestling shirts, I know, in the Louisville store, St. Louis, and I think Indianapolis. Yeah. So I will link to those uh, on Take the blog. The bruiser, uh, Dick the Bruiser, but yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Wrestling at the Chase. Wrestling at the Chase, and there's one in, that's the one in St. Louis. There's all kinds of like old school right, uh, right. Those shows. That yes. we I'll, yeah. I'll link to those in the, the blog and uh, on the Podbean page, kids. So so uh, we'll discuss that on the other side. Awesome. awesome. Darren, PF, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank Thanks for coming you. over. We'll see ya. Rob the Bomb Williams, fascinating stuff, right? Really had no idea how any of that worked. Uh, tell your friends I like the big time pro wrestling to listen to this episode. And today's show was produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They're from Philadelphia, and you can find them on Facebook. And, of course, you can find that song in iTunes or wherever else you get your music. And you can find vintage T-shirts from Philadelphia and other great cities like Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Louisville, Seattle, Portland, and more at OldSchoolShirts.com. And, of course, Cincy Shirts is online at CincyShirts.com. In case you missed it, the promo code for this episode is anytime, all one word, obviously. And that is good at both CincyShirts.com as well as OldSchoolShirts.com. And if you're a wrestling fan, uh, we have vintage wrestling shirts from all over the country, including Cincinnati. Uh, they used to do wrestling shows in St. Louis, I think one of the hotels downtown, and then Louisville used to do them at the arena there. So we have all those shirts. You can use the promo code and uh, grab all those old great wrestling shirts. Uh, so check all those out, and if you're in or from the greater Cincinnati area and have a Peel's Palace logo and or know who owns that logo, please contact us or have them contact us at info at cincyshirts.com. We'd love to make a shirt for that. I'm sure a lot of folks in greater Cincinnati would really enjoy having one of those Peel's Palace shirts. And if you're in the Cincinnati area, also stop by one of our stores. We are in Over the Rhine at Main and Liberty, soon to be moving down to the corner of 12th and Main at the beginning of April, hopefully. We're also in Hyde Park on Observatory, a block from the square. Loveland coming soon, hopefully mid-May. We'll keep you posted. Download or stream us next time. Bye. <laughs>